joined in studio by FO1 News Director Ted Baker. Uh, it's been a bit. This is definitely what I would call a hiatus, but we're here now on a new day, and I think things are going to be a little better organized here moving forward. Uh, we've got plenty to talk about, Ted. Uh, pandemic it's not on the list for the first we took we took like a two-month break and now we don't have to talk about covid i can put it on if you'd like oh I mean, god I, please no <laughs> i always have some opinions about covid yeah so uh obviously tons to talk about today uh we're gonna spotlight basically five or six stories every week that we think are uh the most interesting and also the ones that are getting the most uh, buzz and talk uh, on social media and then in responses to our uh daily newsletter uh first things first let's get into uh, topic number one, hiring struggles. Uh, we had an interesting story last week. Thompson Health in Canandaigua has more than 250 openings right now. Last week, a job fair was held and 40 people showed up. Around half were hireable, according to Thompson officials. Uh, unemployment numbers continue to decline, which kind of begs this fundamental question about economic viability, not just in healthcare, but everywhere. Uh, how does healthcare or any business at this point uh, continue to survive with these these labor gaps that uh, seem to be unfixable, at least in the moment. I think it's going to be very difficult for healthcare in general, and I'm wondering how much of it is the media's fault. I mean, how much reporting have we seen over the last couple of years about how horrible and miserable it is to be a healthcare worker these days, and crowded hospitals, and all the you know, it's it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And also, I just don't think that business in general has coped with the great resignation yet. During the pandemic, a lot of people decided they could get by with fewer hours worked. Right. And I think the business world has sort of thought that that would just come back around and we'd be full steam ahead. I don't think we will be. I think the nature of how we live and work has changed fundamentally since March of 2020, and I don't think a lot of people have really come to grips with that yet. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because um, the entire economy, I think, was very fragile before the pandemic, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, economies like, I'll say, the Finger Lakes and Central New York that rely heavily on tourism and uh, we'll say a lot of kind of like part-time work or seasonal work. Um, Combining that fact with the pandemic uh, and then sort of the long-term reality, which we've talked a bit about before uh, on the show with declining uh, populations at schools, declining enrollment at K through 12 schools uh, across the Finger Lakes. I mean, I, I recall the, the data from just a couple of years ago. There were only uh, two or three districts out of uh, over 60 in the Finger Lakes, or what we consider to be our coverage area, the Finger Lakes that had seen increases in enrollment in the last 40 years. And the rest had all declined significantly, not by a little, but by a lot. And I think that that is your, your long-term indicator, right, of how viable a workforce is going to be 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And here we are um, with just a little bit of extra pressure, it feels like, by the pandemic or caused by the pandemic. And so many of these businesses or so many of these different uh, industries are really struggling. I'm, I'm curious to see how, and maybe you have a little bit of insight to this now. Um, you spend a lot of time at, at breweries and sort of visiting the, the, the tourism spots uh, in the Finger Lakes. And I'm curious, do they appear to be as uh, robustly staffed as they were uh, pre-pandemic? 
I haven't really noticed any great change in that regard. I mean, I, it, most of them are fairly minimally staffed anyway. I mean, right. unless you go to one of the really big ones, most of your, your small microbreweries have one person who is the tasting room manager and is pouring the beer. Yeah. And, you know, there's maybe somebody in the business office. So I, I think that we have to sort of rethink, look at how we measure our economy. We measure it by whether it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We don't measure it by whether people are happy or fulfilled. I, I mean, that's the whole thing, is a lot of people are working less by choice. And I don't think they're going to change their minds and say, oh, I have to go back to work because the TV told me so. Uh, so I think that the challenge for businesses is to figure out how to do things with fewer people, which, I mean, they've always been trying to do anyway, and and just to figure out what this new reality is going to be. I think if if you sit around and think it's going to get back the way it was, I think you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, and I think the other uh, the other point that came to mind when I was uh, drafting some of, some of this up was, you know, uh, think about some of the folks who might have had a part-time job where they're working 10, 15, 20 hours on top of their 40-hour uh, uh, job or career. What's the thought, what's the incentive for them to go back to that second job? Um, you think about some of the things that have just gotten more costly. And on one hand, you could say, well, geez, some people with the prices in grocery stores and how expensive homes are and rent and everything like that. Uh, on one hand, you'd, you'd be led to believe, well, geez, there should be tons of people flocking to these jobs because they need the extra money. Um, but the reality might more, more likely be that uh, folks are just checking out. They're giving up. And, you know, you can kind of look at home sales, I think, as an indicator of that. You know, does that part-time job at the brewery or at the winery help you be able to afford a house that's selling for fifty, sixty, seventy, a hundred thousand dollars over list and assess price? I, I don't think so. So, you know, what incentive is there to go back to work those extra hours? We always think about like, or at least I do. I think about like my my parents, my grandparents' generation, and listening to um, those folks sort of tell stories about. The, the things they were doing, the extra jobs they were working when they were trying to build a house, the overtime they were working. And now I just, I, I look at reality for 20 and 30 somethings in the Finger Lakes or, or anywhere, frankly. And it just doesn't align with that idea. Well, if you work X number of extra hours, you'll be able to build the house that you want, or you'll be able to get the house that you want. It just is like the math doesn't work. And increasingly, I think young people, I, I don't think it's even that they want to do this and are despairing that they'll be able to. They're looking at it and going, this is dumb. Right. Why do I want to work these extra hours for my $350,000 house? I'll just stay in my apartment. And and here's another factor, too, that that comes into the economy is just because people are working doesn't mean they're buying the way they used to. Look at work at home. When I took this job, I work generally most weeks. I'm in the office three days, and I'm at home two days. Those are two days that I'm not driving past the convenience store, tempted to run in and grab something, or run downtown. I mean, one of my former radio jobs there was a really nice bakery right around the corner from that radio station, and I'm in there almost every day getting things. Yeah. So I think that the working at home increase has led to fewer people going out for lunch to a restaurant or, like I said, running into the convenience store and grabbing a couple of snack things. So it's there's a whole, like I said, a real fundamental change in the way we're going about our lives since March of 2020. 
Yeah, and I would just caution anybody who's who said probably over a year ago now at this point on the show, you said uh, maybe community X or community Y doesn't necessarily need as many restaurants or as many of industry specific type businesses as it did before. And to your point, with more people working remotely and less people being out and commuting and around and frankly, for that matter, uh, less people living in places like Seneca Falls, less people living in places like Geneva, uh, wherever the community might be in the Finger Lakes, maybe there's a bit of a recalibration that's going to take, uh, you know, another six months, a year, two years, three years before we really see what this uh, new normal is uh, for the economy. And this is also, I mean, it's a pretty simple supply and demand equation. Here's something else I said a year ago and probably two and three and four years ago as well. If, if you're a business and you want to get people to work, you can do it today. Raise the right. Right. Uh, maybe I mean, it's it's hard because we, we've come to think in terms of sort of entry level jobs as being twelve dollars an hour. Now they're eighteen and twenty. If that's not enough, maybe they should be twenty five or thirty. And this is where the business people reach out and want to strangle me. I understand, but that's supply and demand. You have fewer people and lots of openings, so you either need to reduce the number of openings or raise the rate to a point where it now becomes attractive. There is a point somewhere. Is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 50? There's a point somewhere where people will come out of the woodwork and always that human tendency to think, if we just wait, things will get back to the way they were. And this time, I don't think they will. Well, and you making that point really just uh, sparked my memory on something else is like, you know, at the end of the day, we've seen a lot of population loss over the, the long term. Wages... Better wages, uh, frankly, those that beat out other parts of the state or other parts of the country are how you get people. We've been listening to, to folks talk about how Florida is gaining from New York, you know, every single day. Why is that? Well, better tax climate. Maybe it's less restrictive in terms of the, the people who are starting businesses. But Weather. frankly, it's money, right? <laughs> like, And it really isn't any more complicated than that. I think like if you want to beat out other areas... Uh, or if you want to see people move back into areas, wages is one route to that. If you aren't going to actually see the economic development leaders, the local government leaders step up and figure out a way to get people to come back, which I think has been exactly what's happened over the last 15 years. Over the last 15 years, through my adult life, I've watched every community in the Finger Lakes essentially shrink. Uh, and I've watched a lot of people. Uh, IDA leaders, I've watched a lot of experts in all of these different uh, areas, whether it be specifically economy, jobs, industry, growth, whatever the case may be, say and talk about a lot of things that could potentially uh, gain some of that back. But, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding and the data, and there hasn't been any growth, any meaningful growth. So wages, and, that's that's one route to it, I think. And, of course, the, the argument from the capitalist side is always we can't afford to pay those wages. The counterargument is if you put more money into the pockets of workers, they're also your customers and consumers, and they'll buy more things. I My own belief is, it's always been, that ultimately the money winds up back in the hands of businesses anyway. I think... If you made the minimum wage $50 an hour, business people, don't burn me an effigy yet, hear me out, I think 
you'd have a thriving economy because all these people making $50 an hour aren't going to stick it under their mattress. They're going to start buying things. They're going to go get a bigger big screen TV. They're going to buy cars. They're going to buy houses because now maybe they can afford to. That's my philosophy. I don't know what, what classical economic theory says about this, but I think the money eventually winds up back in the hands of businesses no matter what you do. I mean, Henry Ford way back in the early 20th century, was asked how come he paid his workers as much as he did, and he said, who do you think buys my cars? Yeah, yeah, and I think the, the typical response to that has been, or what we've seen over the last 9 to 10 months, is inflation. Uh, and whether that's true or not, I think at the end of the day, you've got this basic balance between the essentials, the things that people absolutely need to survive, or in theory, need to survive, housing, uh, food, that sort of thing, uh, and then the work that they're doing every day. And if the work they're doing every day does not cover those essentials, then you're in a spot where you're you're going to lose, whether it be workers, whether it be workforce, whether it be uh, actual businesses, you're going to see declines in all areas if those two things can't cover one another. There are signs uh, that inflation is beginning to go down already. and And I mean, the cause of it was... When you have an economy that almost grinds to a halt and then heats back up again, I mean, inflation's the inevitable response to that. I mean, right. it was going to happen. And, and, of course, when we talk about inflation, we should also talk about the fact that there's been almost none for the previous 40 years. So quick hikes always shock us most. That's why I always say, you know, we talk about municipalities raising, for example, water rates. You're better off having a little rate increase every year than trying to hold the line for six or seven and then suddenly saying, well, now we need a 20% hike. Right. Yeah. And and that's just sort of uh, one angle of this economic problem. And, and interestingly enough, next topic we're going to talk about here, uh, shopping malls, is another area of that issue. Uh, over the weekend, we featured a story about Great Northern Mall in the Syracuse area, specifically Clay. Uh, it's physically declining. Uh, there are back taxes on the property. An owner that doesn't really seem to be too interested in dealing uh, with it and also not much of a future for the mall itself. County officials say they don't want to buy it uh, like they did with another mall, Shopping Town, in Onondaga County. So uh, what's the best case scenario for these shopping centers and even strip plazas too, I would say, fit into this category because we're seeing a lot of those uh, get emptier and, and less filled uh, as the economy, as the shopping economy changes. Uh, as they empty out, what is the best case scenario for these properties or what seems like the best use for I'm them? I'm not really sure that there is one. I think this is part of what we were just talking about. I think the the economy is going to have to shrink a little bit and, and find its balance. I, when you think about malls, the traditional mall, let's face it, most of the stuff they sell really isn't anything you need very much. It's all, it's, it's trendy fashion and, you know, GameStop and all these kinds of things. It's not staple things. And I think those are the things when people decide to work less, those are the things that they're saying, I don't need so much anymore. So I think maybe the average shopper isn't going into Forever 21 as much as they used to or or another, I mean, you know, old guy talking here, but you go to a mall, your basic mall, and it's a, a bunch of look-alike clothing stores all blaring loud music and flashy lights and trying to be trendy. You know, at the end of the day, how many clothes do you need? 
Well, and I think that's just sort of the shopping trend change. They're just buying them online, right? Like they're just buying, they're buying that, from yeah. those places online that's as opposed to too. going to the physical store. I think to me, the answer the answer for these properties is housing. You you can fix whether you want to address the affordable housing issue, uh, whether you want to uh, address housing for folks who don't have reliable transportation, or whether you want to address uh, housing uh, for seniors, uh, where transportation slowly but surely becomes an issue. Uh, there were a couple really great pieces of feedback from uh, the Saturday newsletter where you know a couple of people laid out kind of the, the idea of this micro community, right? That you could build within these really vast commercial spaces. Um, and there have been some examples of this happening. There's a mall down in the DC area uh, that kind of went through this evolution, did this kind of thing where they converted uh, the second floor into housing and then did a lot of mixed use stuff on the first floor. I, I'm actually kind of envisioning something that Jackie Augustine would talk about pretty regularly on this show yeah. uh, in past. You know, I, I think that's the answer, but I'm not sure how we get there. Like, I, I think there's this expectation from, I'll say the, the activist crowd who would want to see the people who own them uh, be forced to make that move, be forced to make that transition, or uh, be given, uh, essentially have those properties moved over to the public uh, space so that government leaders can act on these ideas and the concepts. But I don't think there's a viable path to making either of those a reality, if that makes sense. So what we're left with is kind of this wishful thinking that a lot of folks have about what could work really well in these vast empty spaces versus the reality right now, which is just they're they're physically declining. And I mean, you know, I, I think of the mall in Irondequoit, uh, which which really had effectively a 20 year window where it was nothing. And it just it was a shell of itself and it went through multiple phases of ownership and deterioration before something actually happened. And now we're seeing something actually happen with that property. It's not the housing solution, but it's another kind of community-themed, aimed uh, endeavor. That's probably the answer. I just don't know how we get there. I'm not sure how um, how anyone gets there without uh, government influence or some real interest on the uh, private sector side where they see it as an investment opportunity. Well, and see, maybe this is where we should be spending some economic development dollars because business people are generally reluctant to make large investments on a future that's uncertain. Yeah. So this idea of a mixed kind of community, I think this is the way, especially that young people are looking to live their lives, and I think there'd be some appeal there. But if I'm you know, a mall owner, is it... Am I better off to take that chance and then maybe I'm wrong and it doesn't work? Or am I better off to just let the property sit, My, uh, you know, cut my losses? I might be better off to just let that building sit and, you know, pay the taxes on the land if I have to, rather than make that investment for an uncertain future. So maybe this is where, instead of IDAs trying to attract big employers, like we always talk about, and get that big headline, new factory, 300 jobs, maybe they should be looking at what people want and say, okay, if especially the young generation wants 
their bank to be near where they live that they could walk to and want restaurants nearby that they can walk to, then maybe that's where some of those economic development dollars should go to, to build that future of what America is going to look like. And I think to some degree there's been a bit of, um, for, for corporations that own a lot of these or even um, portfolios that, that include dozens of, say, shopping, shopping malls or shopping centers, um, I think this decline in the, the regulatory environment around them has kind of allowed this situation to play out because if you have 12 really profitable properties and you have 12 really not so profitable properties and maybe six of them are just straight up losses, um, those six straight up losses are beneficial to you in the, in the whole grand scheme of how much you're paying in taxes and whatnot. So, you know, I think to some degree, unfortunately, um, corporations have been incentivized to not really act in the best interest of, say, a failing mall or a really large commercial space that's deteriorating year after year and becoming a community blight and also simultaneously maybe one of the few real opportunities for that community. I'll use the Finger Lakes Mall as an example. Um, that is probably one of the most ready-made spaces to do something with that exists in the Auburn area. Um, the physical space is already there. Not saying it's housing, not saying it's any of these things that we're talking about, but just the idea that it's this ready-made space. But if a large corporation owns a property like that and they're able to use that to sort of um, negate some of their their otherwise what they need to pay the, the government in taxes, then perhaps there's not quite the full incentive there for them to act on doing something awesome with that property. Well, that's a good point. And then the other thing that we've seen companies do over the years is many times they'll close down their poorest performing stores, even if they're making money. It's not that they're not making money, but they're not making enough. When you're beholden to shareholders, it's all about maximizing return to shareholders. So we right. see companies take a look at their 100 stores and say, we're closing our 10 worst, and those 10 worst may not even have been losing money. But if I have a store that's making, you know, throw a number out there, 3% profit margin, and the others in my chain are doing 7, then why don't I put more resources into those that are doing 7 and close the one that's doing 3? Yeah, and that's the the reality I think right now on the regulatory side that has to kind of catch up with this uh, with the modern expectations. I think the big shift that we've seen through the pandemic, whether it be work, whether it be uh, wages, whether it be housing issues, um, we've seen a change in how people think about these things, and that I think is going to be the big outcome of the next two to three years, where you're really going to start to see, or could potentially start to see, some policy shift. Uh, in in those areas based on how people's philosophy has changed about work, about how, where they live and what they expect out of their, their communities and neighborhoods. Well, and it's also some entrepreneur is going to come along. The, the key to success in being an entrepreneur is to anticipate what the public's going to want before other people do. You know, right. Bill Gates figured out that we'd want computers sooner than other people did or or you know the guy i think it was uh i think it was hewlett packard uh hewlett packard that was formed in somebody's dorm room you know so so there's going to be somebody out there who's going to figure out these questions that we're asking 
before anybody else does, and they'll be the ones to profit and take advantage, whether it's building this new kind of community or anticipating some other need as we move, hopefully, into a post-pandemic economy. Gas tax holiday. We have heard so much about that over the last two to three weeks. Uh, gas prices obviously have, have risen, and maybe they've kind of flattened out a bit or declined ever so slightly, but they are still very high compared to what they were just a, a couple months ago. Um, is that the adequate fix to the problem we're facing right now? Because it seems like a gas tax holiday would be a response to that problem if it were caused purely by the Russia-Ukraine conflict and not by a bunch of other factors, which obviously it is much more complicated <laughs> than, than Russia and Ukraine. Um, but still... The idea of pausing New York State's uh, gas tax when you're talking about 50 cents, that, that would be a meaningful uh, savings for uh, motorists. Uh, is that something the state leaders should be thinking about, or is that not the route that, that we should be taking? At this no, point? that's not the route. I mean, it, it, you know, here, here's a, a, a crazy idea. We, we're told that New York is awash in cash and has this big budget surplus. What does a budget surplus mean? It means you took more taxes from the taxpayers than you needed to run the government. Why don't you give it back? Why don't you just write a check to everybody? Why not do state stimulus? We had federal stimulus. If gas prices are getting everybody down, send a check for $500 to each New York household or 250 or whatever it is that can be afforded. Um, I will, I'll try to rein myself in here because when you get me started on gas prices, uh, it has nothing whatsoever to do with Russia and Ukraine. The, the oil is produced and refined all over the world. It has to do with commodity speculators. They drive prices up. They drive prices down. It's fairly unlikely, I think, at this point. I think we've seen the peak, and we're headed back down. Historically, we've had these bumps you know, a few times, and it, and it was worse. I, I, I don't remember the exact year, but I recall it getting up to more like 450. And, I mean, I know it did some places, but I, I don't think this peak is as high as others we've seen in the past. And if history is to be believed, I, I don't think it'll be too much longer until we're back down. Now, where we'll settle this time, we may not settle at $2.20 or whatever. Maybe we'll settle at 275 or maybe it'll be 320 but I don't think it's going to be up in the fours for long. I've already seen it come down as much as 30 cents, I think, in some places from what it was at the peak. So, you know, and by the time they get around to hashing this out, you know, you're going to pass a gas tax holiday when gas prices are back down to 340 a gallon, and who needs it at that point, really? Right. Yeah, and it's interesting. It, it points, it's a really great segue to our next topic because it just shows how slow government is in actually responding to sort of these moment-by-moment um, -moment issues that wind up having a really big impact on people's personal economy. Um, another one, Bitcoin mining. Uh, so we saw state leaders punt on a decision uh, until after June's primary uh, for governor. Does this give us a clue about what decision is coming from the state on whether there's going to be a uh, Bitcoin mining moratorium or maybe some new restriction or something along those lines. Do we have a, a bit of an idea now what direction this is going to go? Well, I think we do. And I guess the question is, do we know, was the delayed after the elections specifically because of the elections or is that just the date they happen to pick? I, I mean, it sounds like 
the, the state doesn't really want to stop this from happening. I mean, because, again, if, if you really wanted to, you, you've had ample opportunity over the last several months and years. I mean, when you keep just kicking it down the road, if the ultimate goal was to say, no, we're going to ban it, why would you just keep delaying that? Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. And actually, um, having seen a, a fair share of coverage of this over the last three to four weeks, I mean, I just don't really know how anyone can, can see what the state is doing and not believe that they're going to rule in favor of those who are uh, doing the Bitcoin mining. In this case, it's the, the energy plant down on, on Seneca Lake in Dresden. Um, this is this is one of those scenarios where I wonder if the state even really has the bandwidth to make a good decision on it. Um, obviously, the DEC, uh, quirks and all aside, um, criticism of that agency aside, they are a shell of their former selves. Uh, the Cuomo administration did a really good job uh, over the span of about nine, ten years of ripping the DEC apart to the point where, from a staffing standpoint, it's a shell of what it was. And the idea that, you know, Bitcoin mining is new. This is new stuff. This is kind of like in the fracking lane a bit where it kind of like it bubbled up out of nowhere and then it disappeared. Quick action was taken on fracking. This, it's not happening. It's not there. I don't think it's going. So because of that, using history as the, as the guide, I don't see the state making the decision that advocates of the environment of the Finger Lakes region want to see happen. Well, and, and as they said in Watergate, follow the money. Who's more likely to donate money to a Hochul campaign or someone's campaign, Greenwich Generation or Seneca Lake Guardian? Who's got more money to donate? I, I mean, I think it's it's pay to play. It sounds to me like the state has decided that it's in their interests, or at least the politicians' interests, to not anger these big companies that have deep pockets to help politicians get elected. Yeah, and the perception I think for the average reader, and we've gotten plenty of feedback on this front. They, the, the when the average person reads a story about Greenwich, um, they see an entity almost like a person that has been the target of um, environmental advocates for years on more than just the Bitcoin or on the Bitcoin mining front. So I think there's a bit of fatigue there too from the quote unquote average voters perspective. So when they hear uh, or see these stories about uh, the damage that's being done or whatever the case may be, or the threat that a place like Greenwich poses uh, to the, the region's environment, kind of in one ear out the other thing because it has been this for the better part of four years now um the the, the coverage of greenwich over and over and over again whether it be the the ash landfill or whether it be uh various dec permits that are that have to be applied for every couple of years similarly to seneca meadows we see we've seen the same thing um <clears throat> And I think to some degree, because of that, people lose say, the average person who doesn't have time to read every 2,000 word story on the, on the topic. Uh, the average person loses, kind of loses grasp of what factors are really at play with these sort of individual uh, news events within the broader 
news event. And because of that, it, it becomes very difficult for elected leaders at the highest level, the state, to feel the pressure that they would need to feel from the people on the ground, voters on the ground in the community, uh, to be persuaded to make the kind of act or take the kind of action that advocates want to see. Well, and honestly, I think these kinds of issues don't matter nearly as much to the average voter or FingerLegs1.com web viewer as they do to the advocates. I, I think it's a big issue for them. I think most people, especially having gone through a pandemic over the last couple of years, they're more concerned about paying the rent and affording to put gas in the car and all those kinds of things than they are in these other issues. But you also you mentioned Seneca Meadows and, and talking about the DEC and its decreasing clout. I mean, we just had the announcement recently out of one Seneca Meadows official essentially saying, we don't give a damn about the local law and the end of our permit in 2025, we're going full steam ahead. So clearly they believe that the environmental regulators are weakened to the point that they don't have to pay any attention to what they say anymore. Or that the regulations simply, um, if you're approaching this from the standpoint that uh, Seneca Meadows or any other of these uh, entities are violating the standards that the state has for environmental regulation, then maybe the regulations are the problem and not the people at either end of the exchange. Or that equation. could be. I mean, both, and I'm not trying to lump Seneca Meadows and Greenwich in together, just saying that they're two, right. you know, two companies that generally are, are at odds with environmental advocates. But I think that, that they believe they're acting as well as they can. I mean, right. you know, Greenwich keeps talking about we're carbon neutral, and, and Seneca Meadows talks about what they do in the environmental field. So I, I don't know. I see when you, 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 to go circle back to the beginning of the topic, you said something about the the DEC making a good ruling. I'm not sure what a good ruling is. I mean, I've said many times, you know, the Greenwich Generation Facility is a power plant. It generates electricity. Should we really care why they're generating electricity? Is is generating electricity to mine Bitcoin worse than generating electricity to power a school? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would say, yes, it is. But I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Yeah, and it's complicated. Um, we've also got a couple uh, law enforcement-related stories here to sort of cap off the show. Uh, the first one was a, a harrowing story out of uh, Red Jacket. Sheriff Phil Pavro uh, says the actions of staffers at Red Jacket High School were heroic after a student brought a loaded uh, weapon to the school. Uh, questions have obviously swirled about preventing this type of situation from happening again. Uh, full disclosure, no one, no one was hurt or anything like that. One person, a 15-year-old, was arrested. Uh, that, of course, will be handled through family court. Uh, but the question that I saw uh, pop up a lot on social media afterward, what, if anything, can schools do uh, to mitigate the possibility of incidents like this from taking place? Well, I think we just saw what they can do. I, you can't prevent it. I, you can't make the schools armed fortresses, right. which some of them practically are anyway. So I think that's what you do. You, you have good training, and, and uh, we have reached out to the school system there to try to get some folks to comment, whether it's this particular staffer who I don't believe has been named, at least not that I've seen, yeah. or, or if not, then the, uh, the building principal. But it was just a good job. Somebody kept calm and de-escalated uh, in direct 
contrast to the other issue we're going to talk about where that doesn't seem to have been the case. Well, and, and my thought on this kind of ties into the, the topic we're going to talk about next, which is that the mental health, um, it's not, every school has counselors on staff now. Every school has uh, folks dedicated to these, the, to the mental health side of the equation for students. But it seems that we're always seeing um, cases where students, for one reason or another, are slipping through the cracks, so to speak. Um, it may not necessarily be a, a violent situation, but it could be a situation, it, it could be suicide, it could be any number of different things where mental health is not uh, being given as much attention as it probably needs. And I don't think, see, this is, this is something that we saw play out in a school. Frankly, I think the answer is outside of school. I think in school, between 8 and 2 o'clock or whenever students are actually in school, I think they're being given as many services or being given the best opportunity they possibly can be, especially when you have staff who, who care. Um, but I think the problem is actually outside of that. And, you know, I can, I can recall sort of the transition that happened late in my teen years and into my 20s when... Um, primary doctors started asking mental health questions at the beginning of every appointment you had. Um, and I know that's become more widespread, but in my experience and even in talking to some of, some of my friends, younger friends, older friends, the questions are always posed in this very mechanical way. And it's this very kind of like, I have to do, I have to get this out of the way. I, do you, do you, do you feel good about your life? Do you feel, and I think what's, wound up happening is is there are a lot of people at all age levels who are balling up a lot they're they're keeping a lot inside of themselves and they're not actually dealing with those things um and we see it we see that come uh come out in different ways we see that materialize in in real life in different ways and i think that is kind of the gap that needs to be filled if we're going to prevent situations like this from potentially happening in the future. It doesn't, again, to your point, not gonna end them. It's not like it's never going to happen. But I think you prevent a lot of these scenarios from potentially playing out, and you also just make the, the quote unquote human fabric of these communities better. Um, when people are actually engaging with the things that they're feeling, the, the frustrations they're having, or whatever the case may be, they are way better uh, people to engage with than those who are not or simply refuse to or don't have access to. Offering those services is good. The increased focus on mental health is good. Uh, when you talk about these questions from doctors, obviously there, there is political opposition to that sort of thing in some quarters that doctors shouldn't be asking that. Uh, you know, guns are not a mental health issue. But I think the million-dollar question is where does this anger or despair come from? What has changed in our society that leads so many people now to believe that the only solution to what they're feeling inside is to get violent? Uh, that's that's the million-dollar question. I don't. I, I I have a few answers. I think you know, just the coarsening of media, uh, the the coarsening of public discourse brought on by the internet. You, you know, we're now. We have a place where we can go and shout at people in capital letters with exclamation points. But, but that's, to me, the big question is wh what, 
you know, uh, there was no point in my life where I ever seriously considered taking my own life or getting a gun and going violent on other people. So what what's changed that makes so many people now feel like that's the answer? I, I think it's a gen- And see, this is where I, I tend to disagree with a lot of folks because um, the idea that this wasn't prevalent before in past generations, I think is just kind of a, a not acknowledging reality. Um, I've, I've talked to plenty of folks who were in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, and they describe the relationships that their parents had, or they describe the violence that they saw in their homes growing up or among their friends or whatever the case may be. And it's just kind of this like, um, not really acknowledging how these things materialize or how okay. these things came to, to be in past generations versus how they're, how they're uh, materializing now. That's a very good point. And, and sometimes we think a problem's worse because we shine the light on it more than we used to. So, right. so obviously these problems existed in the past and, and probably weren't as widely known. Right. And that's uh, so, where I think it's just a matter of like, this isn't about whether it's worse now or whatever the case may be. This is kind of just a, about trying to figure out how to make it better. Well, how do we keep our kids safe in school? How do yeah. I, how, when I send my kid off to school in the morning, how can I be sure he doesn't get shot by a 15 year old? Right. Uh, and then of course you, you alluded to it a few minutes ago. Uh, we had the officer involved shooting in Wayne County, a deputy fired a sidearm after being dispatched by uh, to a mental health call by state of state office of mental health officials. Uh, no life-threatening injuries were reported, uh, but the typical debate ensued. How can these situations be handled safely and adequately for everyone involved? There were some folks who said, you know, why did the, why did the deputy have to fire his, his sidearm? Um, the person was not fatally wounded. They were shot in the leg. Um, it seemed as though this situation was one that warranted law enforcement uh, to be called to it. I think that, again, this is just one of those scenarios where, unfortunately, you are still going to have, from time to time, this type of thing happen. That said, it's been amazing the number of conversations I've had with folks in law enforcement over the last six to 12 months who are getting more boisterous about not wanting to have to be dispatched to these mental health calls. Like, if there were ever a time when I think all sides were ready to just spend more money, like government spend more money on having a more adequate system to handle mental health crisis calls, whatever the case may be. Um, even you think about even some like domestic incidents and things like that, that have historically been thrown on law enforcement to respond to, uh, putting mental health professionals, family health professionals in those scenarios instead of exclusively law enforcement, uh, instead of exclusively cops, we're at that moment. Well, unfortunately, this is part of what a lot of defund the police is about. The problem is that name was a horrible choice of name. It immediately put a lot of law enforcement on the defensive saying, well, you know, what have we done? And yes, we have high profile incidents, which goes back to what you were talking about before. Do we have more of those now than we used to, or are we just being made more aware of them? Right. 24-hour media has, I mean, that's an invention of the last roughly 40 years or so. Yeah. And before that, we didn't have media that had 24 hours to fill and had to have something and prefers conflict. So anyway, that, that 
sort of discussion is part of what this whole movement is about, that we should divert funds away from sending armed people on mental health checks to sending mental health people on mental health checks. So I have a lot of questions about this, and I will withhold judgment on a lot of it until we have better answers. But the first is, do we know if the officer had just simply left, was this individual posing a danger to, most importantly, anyone else, secondarily to his, himself? Because if the answer is no, then why was just simply not retreating and calling in more people or better educated mental health people an option here? In this case, I, I think it, it bears pointing out that the person was armed with a weapon. Right. Or what the sheriff's office defined as a weapon. The deputy did retreat a significant distance before deploying a taser twice unsuccessfully, then uh, using his sidearm. And he was called there by, they were dispatched there by the state office of mental health right and i think that is the part of the equation to me that makes more sense like that should be the process like the mental health uh professionals should be going to these different scenarios first and then law enforcement if necessary instead right. of law enforcement first and then because that's where we get into the scenario that you're talking about which is this a cop is put between uh, a rock and a hard place essentially in having to make a choice that that may or may not have a result on its own life it just life. it doesn't seem to me like the choice whether it's this case or some of the high profile officer shootings around the country that we've heard of in the last few years it never seems like just leaving is an option i mean so he retreated fine but he still wound up shooting the person so so again i you know and the state called him in if I'm a mentally unstable person, for whatever reason, off the meds or, or whatever it might be, and I see an armed officer of the law coming toward me, am I going to get more stable or less stable? I, I just think that's a dangerous situation. The second part of this that I always find interesting, uh, the officer twice apparently tried to deploy his taser. When tasers first came onto the scene in law enforcement, we were told they were an alternative to fatal force, that they would be used in a situation where in the past we'd have used a gun. That clearly, that that mission has, has escaped from the box now. because So we're saying that if I hadn't tased this man, I would have shot him? I mean, that, that used to be, the, the point was, with these weapons, we can subdue somebody without having to shoot him. Now they try to tase him twice, and he winds up getting shot. So I just don't know... It, it seems to me, unless there was an imminent threat, and that's what I don't know, the man had a weapon. I, I don't think we know even exactly what that was. I don't know who he was with, what the relationship was. Was he with a family member? So I, I'm just I'm wondering how imminent the danger was or if a better option might have been to simply leave the scene and say, this individual is not being cooperative. If I continue to persist something bad's going to happen, I'm going to leave. Now, if you leave and something bad happens... Yeah, then, I, I, then... and just sort of thinking through the, the reality of that, like, I'm not sure that would be an acceptable approach to anyone's standard. Um, I'm not sure that anyone would be okay with this. The person was armed, allegedly, um, being threatening toward the officer, um, 
potentially driving under the influence as well. I, they're they're different. But again, he he wouldn't he would have no opportunity to be threatening toward an officer until an officer shows up. That's we're talking about in the red jacket scene. The staff de-escalated the situation. This officer, I will take them at their word that he was trying to de-escalate, but what he ended up doing was escalating the situation by his presence there, as opposed to let's send some guys in lab coats that look like mental health officials that aren't carrying weapons, and maybe this person will respond differently. Maybe not. I don't know. And, and that's the problem with this whole approach, is if we don't send in an armed officer and this individual then shoots somebody, then it's like, see, that approach doesn't work. So, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm just questioning whether the best approach to mental health issues is to send an armed individual. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's an interesting question that I think, frankly, we aren't going to see a good answer on for quite a while. And I know a number of law enforcement agencies are giving their officers more training in these kinds of situations. I, in fact, I think it's the, if I remember correctly, the Ontario County Sheriff Department has put together a team to deal with these kinds of issues and they are getting more training in it. I don't know what amount of training this deputy may or may not have had in handling these kind of situations. And you said it right at the start. In most cases, or at least in many cases, they'd rather not have to handle these kinds of situations. They feel like there are better people to try to do that sort of intervention than they are. Yeah, and I almost wonder if it's a, a kind of detachment between multiple um, agencies, right? Like you've got yeah. your mental health department at the county level, you've got your mental health at the state level, you've got, which those two are sort of married up at the hip. Um, but then you've got law enforcement, and I wonder if it's not time to see uh, mental health professionals be almost an equal force to um law enforcement agencies on the agency and like perhaps in terms you of actually have, being embedded perhaps you have a combined sort of team right but the mental health professionals go in first the officers keep their distance and they're there right if it escalates they can come in quickly but the first thing this mentally unstable individual sees is not an armed person coming their way right yeah all uh, all possibilities uh of course that's all the time we have for today Stay tuned to FingerLakesOne.com for the latest news, weather, sports, and podcasts. And uh, be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter for the biggest stories delivered to your inbox every morning at 6.30 a.m. For Ted Baker, I'm Josh Durso, and we will catch you next time.